My name is Chris Eelman, so I serve as one of the pastors here, the church ministries pastor at Harvest, and have done that for a few years, and then served uh, prior to that in youth ministry, and just recently finished some schooling, and so now I'm supposed to be like able to teach, right? But I'm like totally inadequate for this, so God is uh, going to equip us and equip me, Lord willing, for the task. Um, But I'm just going to pray, and then we'll dive into some of the stuff we have on that paper in front of you tonight. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come to get here together and to just study your word, study what you've said about the topic of angels, demons, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray as we look at your word that you'd give us wisdom and discernment to understand it properly, to not just make it say what we want to say or what we think uh, maybe it's always said, but to understand what you truly have said. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to just question some of maybe the cultural biases that we have or assumptions and to be able to approach your word uh, as clearly as possible. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives, that this would not just be a mental exercise, but it'd also be a great opportunity for us to grow in our walk with you and to uh, put into practice some of the things we've learned tonight. Lord, we pray too for those that perhaps couldn't make it tonight for other reasons. We just pray that you would uh, encourage them tonight, allow them to uh, just be able to take this in via podcast or some other way and to continue studying your word. So we pray this all in your name. Amen. So you each will have one of these course syllabus things in front of you, syllabi, uh, if you, in the plural. This just helps you to put it on dates. It, it more helped me to kind of organize my mind around it. So this course is going to run for six weeks. Six weeks, uh, not all entirely in a row. There's one date in there for March break where we will not be meeting, uh, as I assume many of you are gone. So just make note of those dates. There won't be reminders sent or anything, uh, but February 13th, 2027, March 6th, 20th, 27th. And then the course description. So this is a six-week course on some of the stuff that is like most mind-boggling to me. And so I hope it's encouraging for you as we dive into angels, demons, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the emphasis on this course is not just understanding these things. I could give you textbooks that would explain a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, but we want to also focus on application of this knowledge. So it's not just that you can walk around with a big head saying, I know lots about angels, lots about demons, and lots about the Holy Spirit, but it should actually change the way we live. There tends to be a lot of confusion and speculation when it comes to the unseen realm, obviously, because it's not visible, and so there's lots of conjecture about that, uh, but we want to go and see what the Bible has to say. It has to say a lot more. I know it says a lot more than I've ever thought it said as I've been preparing for this course, just realizing it has tons to say, and I've neglected it often, so we don't want to do that uh, tonight. And since the Bible does talk about the supernatural, it's therefore important for us to know what it says and to apply it to our lives. So just right out the gate, I have a couple of objectives. This is why I'm teaching this course And I want you to think about why you're sitting here taking it. So some of my objectives here, real clear, a cognitive, like a head objective, is to increase your basic biblical knowledge about the spiritual realm. I do want to see us equipped to just have understanding about that. And then to be able to also identify false concepts that our culture or even, even our church culture might promote. So there's things that I know I've told my kids that is based just on what my parents told me and isn't actually based on my study of Scripture. For example, a lot of the times when I've talked about Satan and the fall of Satan and all that goes on with that, it's just been based on, I think that's what happened. That's 
And I can't actually point to Scripture for why that is. So we want to go and point to Scripture for what we say and then understand, okay, this is what we say. This is where it's founded and how it's true. There's a blank there on each of those objectives so that you can fill in your own if you have one, perhaps, that fits under those categories. Effective, so kind of the heart. We want, we want to change. We want to change. We want to be positioned so that God can change our heart. And specifically, this is what I believe I've been affected by uh, and hope to see affected in each one of you is to feel an awe of God's glory, splendor, and presence. We'll see that as we uh, explore these, these three topics. And then also to have an appropriate attitude towards spiritual beings. Spiritual beings are real. They are absolutely real. And we need to have an appropriate attitude. We don't want to have an, an attitude of worship to angels. That's obviously heretical. But we also don't want to have an attitude of fear about the unseen realm, which isn't necessary because we are in Christ. And then behavior. Our hands, or you could say our, our actions. So to start reading scripture without ignoring supernatural elements is one of my objectives. Because it becomes far too easy for us to just read through scripture and we're like, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. I'm just going to skip it, Right? I don't understand it. I'm going to skip it. No, we want, to, we want to dive in and try to understand those. And then to live daily with an appropriate awareness of the spiritual dimensions of life. An appropriate awareness, not saying like there's a devil under every table or every bush, but recognizing there is a spiritual battle that's going on that is being waged that we need to be aware of as much as possible. So kind of a quick outline. Obviously, there's not a lot of details under there, but first week today, we're going to do a little bit of an introduction to this. Uh, and then talk about angels. A lot of good content tonight going through scriptures. We're going to thumb through a lot of passages tonight. I brought my computer and Bible software so that maybe I can save some of the work for some of you. Uh, but if you're fast in the Bible, it'll work good too. Then we're going to do a little bit of group discussion. So there's a, a question that I want to ask relating to uh, this discussion on angels later on. And that gives some opportunity. And each night we'll try to take a break midway through just so people can use the washroom. And uh, so we'll probably do that around the group discussion time. The second week, there'll be a quiz. So you get to come back and be quizzed. Because what fun is a class without quizzes, right? So I thought, I'll put a little quiz in there. Don't get too stressed out. Your eternal rewards aren't based on quizzes. But, but there may be a reward for somebody who does the best. Just saying. So, so just a little... in. in encouragement to take notes, to think about this. We're going to talk about angels part two, finishing some of the content because there's a lot of content about angels. Then there's application. So I'll try to talk a little bit about application today, but there's going to be a, a lot, probably the lion's share of the application chat will come next week. And so that'll be really helpful for us to just think, why does it even matter? As I inter, interact with young adults, I'm often trying to tell them, as we study scripture, we always want to ask the why question. Why do we care about this? Why did God care to communicate this to us? There's a reason why. And then there's a Q&A opportunity at the end of the angels section. Uh, there's just this time for Q&A. And so that can be a live q and I'll just give you a heads up. I'm far better with Q&As when I know questions in advance and can think about them a little bit better. I'll field your questions live, but I just can't say I'll answer them as well. So if you want tonight, or tomorrow, well, or not tomorrow, this week, send your questions that you have related to angels. And if we answer them next week, we'll answer them. But if we don't, then we can, uh, we can dive into those and I'll hopefully be able to come a little more prepared for that. Then we start the next week into demons, 
have a little bit of group discussion again, and same kind of format, the week after that, a quiz. So there's only three quizzes in the whole thing. Real easy, right? You guys are like, this is hardly a class. <laughs> so if you get two out of the three quizzes, I don't know how we're going to grade it, but there's another quiz then March 6th, demons, we'll talk application, do the Q&A, uh, and then obviously those Q&As are kind of relevant to what we've just, the unit we've just discussed. Then the final weeks, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit, a little group discussion in there, quiz the next week, Holy Spirit Part 2, application, and then some Q&A time. So hopefully that enables it to be a little bit of an interactive opportunity, those Q&As. Feel free if we're going through and you didn't understand something or something I said wasn't quite clear to, to stick up your hand and ask a question, that's okay. For the sake of the recording, I will probably restate the question. And if I don't, please remind me to. There's a couple of people that are listening via podcast that would just like to know the question and it's hard for them to, to hear the, uh, the audience. So questions are welcomed. Just if you have a real doozy of a question, save that for the Q&A so that we have like the opportunity to spend some time on it. We will have a Q&A, so again, feel free to ask those questions there. Technology, laptops are totally welcome. You're very encouraged to bring them. I find for myself, uh, I listen better when I'm probably not doing a whole lot, not even taking notes. Unfortunately, I don't have like an outline of notes for you <laughs> tonight, but I do have some that I are kind of rough that I could perhaps pass off to those of you that are interested after if note-taking isn't your thing. That won't help you with the quiz. I'll try to leave key details out. <laughs> but, um, but technology is totally welcome. Then absences, obviously missing isn't real great, but we have the recordings online. So, and they're available on podcast. If you have an um, Apple phone, you can search in the Apple Store or Google Play podcast. Just search Harvest Windsor 242 Church or visit that tab on our website, Ministries, then Theological Education, and you'll find stuff there. Probably all of you already knew that because you visited it visited it to uh, even get here. And then there's a little bit bibliography. That'll be expanding as I kind of get resources that are, uh, as I'm, I'm like working through resources and some of them like, ah, they're good, but I don't know if I would recommend them yet. So, but those are four easy ones that are good there for you. So quick little talk about our approach. We've already mentioned this, but our approach is obviously centered and based on the Bible. We all live in a culture that has a lot of uh, supernatural phenomena, I guess you could say, in terms of the media. You look at some of the shows that you might watch or some of the things like that, and you see a lot of talk about the supernatural, whether it's like The Walking Dead or whether it's other kind of shows that talk about, um, talk about the supernatural. But I find there's this tendency to almost think of it as fiction. It's kind of fake, especially when you come into the evangelical church. There's this idea, perhaps this discrepancy where we say we believe in the supernatural, but then we kind of live like it doesn't exist, or we kind of at least think of it as very separate from our lives. So I know I've done it. Even this past week, somebody will share with me and has actually shared with me a story about the supernatural, right? the evidence of like maybe an angel. And in my head, I'm thinking, the very first thinking when somebody says like there was an angel or there was a demon, like the very first thing I'm thinking is like how can we explain this rationally? How can we explain this so that it doesn't have to be supernatural? And probably each one of us could say, yeah, we've done that. Some of us go maybe to the other extreme and we're like everything's spiritual and everything's uh, supernatural and we just want to be careful of that. 
But the illustration I might use for you is the stars in the sky. When I grew up as a kid, I looked outside and there were stars in the sky. I grew up outside of the city. And so very used to seeing stars in the sky every day and just thinking about them, looking at the constellations. When I moved into the city, I can't tell you the last time I saw stars. It's kind of sad, actually. But I can't tell you the last time I saw stars, and why is that? Because the city lights cloud them out, right? And so it's somewhat maybe a picture of what it is like with the supernatural. We live in a world that kind of clouds out the idea of supernatural. It tries to explain everything with rational thought. But the reality is still there, that the stars still exist whether you see them or not. The supernatural still exists whether you see it or not. And unfortunately, there's like, you know, we go from one extreme of the pendulum to the other, right? So we might react to the super charismatic, the super everything spiritualized and react and say, no, there's like a rational explanation, but react too far and basically say that the spiritual supernatural world is not even active. And so just, just as an application point, in most things in life and ministry, there's like these huge extremes, right, from one side to the other. And the solution to fighting that extreme is never to go to the other extreme, because then you, the other extreme being the unbiblical extreme of everything, every single thing is the devil and everything is the angels and everything to the extreme of nothing is. The solution always is to go back to the line of this is what the Bible says. We're going to stick on what the Bible says and we're going to, to toe that line and hold that. So the Bible is our foundation for this course. This is where we're going. Experiences that you've had are important. Experiences that we've had are very important. But those experiences can't dictate to us what is and what isn't because we all know that our experiences can be misinterpreted, can be misunderstood right? It's not uncommon for us to see things and to be maybe deceived as to what's going on. And so we want to just go back, try to understand from scripture what's going on. How many of you heard the, have heard the question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Has anybody heard that? Okay, a few, like not that many. It's like a question I heard once, it's like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? And basically the, that question was maybe posited years and years ago by a guy named Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas, whatever. But the whole idea of that phrase now is, why do we even bother talking about it? It's like pointless. What benefit do we find if we figure out 10,000 angels can dance on the head of a pin versus one, right? We don't want that to be the case tonight. We want this to be practical. We don't want to just talk about things for talking's value. So uh, with that, let's get into talking about what angels are in Scripture. We're going to look at some key terms for angels so this is where you're going to want to take out your pen and write a little bit. Obviously, Scripture has to say a bunch about angels, but there's no like systematic chapter where it's like God decided, I'm just going to tell you all about angels. Angels, when referenced in Scripture, are very often uh, incidental, actually every single time, incidental to some other topic. So as I've been preparing, I've been reading a guy, uh, several systematic theologies. So if you read through some of Millard Erickson or Wayne Grudem or guys like that, you'll probably see a lot of content. So just I'm, I'm crediting them at this point, uh, letting you know that that has very much influenced how this course has been developed. But basically, when we read scripture 
and we're reading to figure out about angels, we just need to realize the main point of most passages that are talking about angels is not angels. Okay, the main point of the passages talking about angels is usually not about angels. They're mentioned because they're part of what God is doing in that story. For example, when the angels announce Jesus' birth, is the main point about that account to talk about angels? No, the main point of that account is to talk about how amazing God's son coming to earth is, announcing it to the shepherds. So angels are part of the story, but they're not the main feature of the story. And then just again, by application, that tips us off to the fact that we shouldn't be overly fascinated with the angel, angelic uh, beings, just because they're not the primary thing. God has included angels uh, in scripture and talked about them for the purpose of bringing him glory of pointing us back to him. And so another illustration to think about this is maybe if you're, I'll draw it on the whiteboard, if you're connecting dots of scripture, right, uh, there are some things that scripture says about angels that are crystal clear. In Matthew, Jesus says that angels do not marry. We know for certain, for a fact from the Bible, that angels do not marry. So we can like plot that as a point of our, our picture of what angels look like. But then there's some passages that talk about angels, but we're not entirely sure that that's, we're, we're inferring some things, we're trying to figure out, such as in Daniel, we're going to look at a passage where it talks about angels appearing to only be in one location at a time. And it, it looks pretty clear, but I wouldn't make it, I wouldn't be overly dogmatic about that, whereas I would be overly dogmatic that angels don't marry, because Jesus said it quite clearly. So some of those dots are a little bit more faint. And then there's some things that we just, we're like going to try to connect the dots, but we have to be very cautious and just figure those things aren't said by scripture. We're trying to connect the dots as best we can, but just realizing where those solid dots are, okay? So as we're going through these, I'll try to identify some of those, um, some of those for you. So some basic terms and definitions just to hear from you, what are some definitions, not definitions, some terms the Bible uses for angels other than the word angel? Do you, what's the right? Stars? Stars, not necessarily, but you're getting in the right area. Like, I guess the morning star, right? Or you'd have to maybe give me a specific passage, but... Okay, I'm going to have to look that one up. Now I'm, I'm already on the hot seat for Q&A. So, no, it's good. Okay, some other... Heavenly hosts, yep. Spiritual beings, yep, in the back. Ministering servants, good, yep. Seraphim, yep. We're a little unsure about that one, but yeah, we'll talk about that one, yep. Sons of God, oh, thanks for getting right to the, <laughs> the challenging one, right? So seraphim is, yes, we'll talk about that. It's only listed one place, the seraphim. Uh, okay, but the first one, the basic one is angel. Angel comes from the Greek word for angelos, which basically means messenger, okay? In the Greek, it's angelos. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it'd be malak or malak, and it basically is messenger. It's that kind of basic term. So this can apply to human messengers or angelic messengers. You got to re recognize this about terms in the New Testament and Old Testament. When there's a term that refers to an angel, 
Sometimes it's like exclusively used for angelic beings, but sometimes a term is used for other things. For example, messenger. There's the word angel comes from the word messenger, but that's also used like this verse I just pulled up on the screen. Luke 7 verse 24. So it says, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So when it says John's messengers there, that's actually the same word that would be used for angels. Okay, so just recognize messengers. So we have to be very careful to just read when we're translating according to the context. It's very clear from that context. It's not talking about John's angels had gone. It's John's messengers had gone. But in other contexts, it's very, very clearly a messenger from God, such as in Luke 2 verses 13, which probably all of us uh, do know. But Luke 2 verses 13, we'll see if we can pull this up on the screen. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in highest. So this is when the angels are uh, meeting the shepherds. And that word therefore angel is the same one used for John the Baptist's messenger, Angelos. So the idea of messenger. So it can apply to human or angelic messengers. Often it applies to um, angelic ones. But right along there, we see another name for angels that's used in scriptures. And the reason we're, we're bringing these terms out is just so that when you're reading scripture, you're recognizing, oh, it's talking about angelic beings at this point. Okay, and so right there in that passage, it talks about heavenly host, which literally is like the army of heaven. If you go into like a passage in the Old Testament, like Exodus 14, you're going to see that it talks about Pharaoh and his hosts, his armies. So we have this literally army of heaven here mentioned in Luke 2.13. We have Matthew 24 verses 36, where it talks about the angels in heaven. We talk about Hebrews 1 verses 13 to 14. Let's go there for a moment. Hebrews 1, 13 to 14. I'll make it real easy on you uh, on the screen here. But if you have a Bible, you can turn there too. It'll be helpful. And it says there in Hebrews, this is a great passage talking about how Jesus is superior to the angels. But it says there, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So ministering spirits, again, is one of the, the terms used for naming these angelic beings. Romans 8, verse 38, another passage well known to many of you. Romans 8, verse 38 talks about angels, but it talks about them with other terms as well. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when it talks about rulers and powers there, it's also referring to angelic spiritual beings. And so it's talking about these uh, angelic, could be demonic as well, beings, but basically nothing in creation can separate us from God is what it's saying in that passage. And then we have Colossians 1.16. So we're going to continue going around. Hopefully you guys can see at the back. Colossians 1.16. For by him, that is God, through Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
So we have their thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. We have all these different terms that again refer to this angelic type of being, this, this spiritual entity. It's not human. It's not God. It's this angelic uh, being. We'll get a, a good definition in a moment for that, uh, for what a, an, an angel is based on some of these passages. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and Jude 9, we don't need to turn there, but you can write those down as important passages. They talk about a specifically named angel. Does anybody want to take a guess at to which angel is ma- named? Now, just going to make sure. <laughs> Michael. It is Michael, yes. I'm like, okay, there's only two that are named in Scripture, Michael and Gabriel. Okay, And Michael is the only one labeled as an archangel, which tips us off to the fact that there's probably... And we can't be dogmatic about what it all looks like, but there's probably some kind of hierarchy within the angels as well, because he's an archangel. Correct. Yes. All angels. Well, you can't be a human angel, right? Because angels are a totally different. Okay. Yes. Right. Yes. So messengers, when I was yeah referring to that, the angelos, the Greek word, it actually is referring to like human messengers, like almost like postal service guys, right? They're messengers, right? Whereas angels are God's messengers, but they are of a totally different, in a sense, different type, right? They're non-material beings, right? They're spiritual beings. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But Archangel Michael tips us off to that. There's um, this hierarchy. So Old Testament. So those were a bunch of ones from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it talks about angels. And one of the terms, yep. Yep, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and Jude 9. No problem. Yeah, if I go too fast, just slow me down, and uh, we'll get there. So in the Old Testament, there's this one passage that shows up, or this one phrase that shows up several times, sons of Elohim. And I'm going to actually pull it up so you can see in Job 1, verse 6, because this is an important Job 1, verse 6. This is an important uh, example that is often misunderstood. So Job, just to give a little bit of context, the book of Job, is, it starts out really fascinatingly where there's this God is meeting with angelic beings and the Satan, the accuser, is one of them among them. But it says here in Job, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So this sons of God phrase is actually like Ben Elohim. It's a, I can like highlight it for you, and it'll probably show you. Yeah, it doesn't totally show you, but it'll show you at the bottom there, Elohim, this Greek word, which doesn't show up on the screen. Elohim is the word that is used in the Old Testament often to refer to God. This is a very fascinating word because Elohim is a plural word. The im ending on Hebrew words makes it plural. So when it's talking about Elohim, there's a few ways that people will understand this. So for example, in Genesis, I believe it's Genesis 1 and verse... um, Genesis 1 and verse, now where is, Genesis 1 and verse 26. So I'm actually skipping ahead of myself here. 
Okay, we'll get there in just a moment. Sons of Elohim is used to refer to angels in this passage, and we'll talk about why in a moment. But essentially, in this passage, that's one of the phrases, and that phrase shows up again in Genesis in several spots, and one of the spots really contested and confusing. We'll talk about that later. Um, but that is one of them. So sons of Elohim, a similar one is sons of Elim, which is translated in our Bibles as heavenly beings, and that's in Psalm 29, verse 1. Okay, so that's another term that the Old Testament uses to refer to angels as son of Elim, which we translate as heavenly beings in Psalm 29, verse 1. Psalm 8, verse 5. Yep. So we were in Job. We were looking at Job just to see that it's sons of Elohim. We're just looking at the ones that sound like God, basically. So sons of Elohim is in Job 1.6. And it uh, is used by the writer there. It's, it's quite clear from the context that it's either referring to like literal sons of God, which none of us would believe because God doesn't have sons. He has a son, Jesus Christ, right? Or it's referring to something else. And in this context, as it's, as we look at it, it's referring to the angelic beings, one of which was the accuser, the Satan. Okay, so we're going to come back to that, the word that's used there in just a moment. But a similar one is the sons of Elim, because they're all based off the same word that we use for God, El, Elohim, Elim, this idea. And so it uses sons of Elim in uh, Psalm 29, verse 1. And then in Psalm 8, verse 5, it really comes to a head because it actually says Elohim, and it doesn't have sons of or anything like that. And it's also used there to refer to angels. So go over to Psalm, Psalm 8, verse 5, and you see that it says, Verse 5, this is talking about man, right prior to it, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that God is mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, is how the ESV translated it. That word there is the Elohim, and crowned him with glory and honor. And so there's debate about what this passage means, whether it means you have made him a little lower than God, presumably quite a bit lower, or you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. But this word Elohim, you just need to know, again, like the word angelos, is flexible in what it can refer to. Okay, so we use the word God, and that means only the one true God. But when you're looking at the Old testament and you look at the way this word is used you see that there's flexibility in what they refer to and we have to go again by context this isn't bad this is just how it kind of works and so we just got to realize in this context we're referring and we're talking to elohim being used to refer likely to angels but this word elohim now that we get to talk about this word elohim so basically i can't draw it out because it probably won't make much sense anyways but the word elohim ends with this em ending which is a plural so if you go into Genesis, Genesis 1.26, and you look at the way the, the creation narrative, it says that God created man, and he created man in our image, right? God created man in his image, created, uh, well, actually, you know what? Let's actually just turn there so we get it looking exactly what, at what it says. But Genesis, just turn to Genesis 1 with me. 
Because this is important for apologetic purposes as you're talking to others that might be wondering about the triunity of God. This is important also that we don't go into false arguments for the triunity of God um, and so that we understand it. So, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Essentially, God's saying, let's create man, right? So then God said that verse, at the beginning of verse 26, that's, then Elohim said. Then Elohim said. So this has confused people in many ways, because it's, asked, it's, it's wondering, why is it saying Elohim as a plural? Why, why does Elohim get translated God there, but then in Psalm 82, it gets translated as gods, plural, low G, gods. Why does Elohim get translated both ways? And so we try to understand, or have multiple reference, but then it'd be like, so then would it be just verse 26, then God's said, let us make manager in our image. That we obviously wouldn't see. But what's going on there? Some people say it's the plural of majesty. You've maybe heard this before. So the idea of the plural of majesty is the Queen of England says, often referring to herself in the plural. She would say, we, this, 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 right? She would refer to herself in the, what's called the plural of majesty. And so some would say that's what's going on here with God, that God refers to himself in the plural of majesty to kind of, it, it elevates who he is and that kind of thing. The problem with that, as I've researched that and read like scholars on that, is that the plural of majesty wasn't a construct used by Semitic languages like Hebrew. So if it's not used, you can't apply it. It's like you can't, if, if you know other languages, you realize that there's some things that we do in English that you, can't, you don't do in other languages. That's not how it works, right? And so we can't apply something from our English language, the plural of majesty, back on a language 2,000 years ago. And so it's not good to do that. But there's another way to understand this, because then all of a sudden people will say, well, if we can't do plural of majesty, how do we explain God referred to as the plural? And so the, the way we do this is to understand a verb, or a word rather, a noun in Hebrew that like water. The word for water in Hebrew is plural, even though it's a singular thing, because it's like quantity. It's like the quantitative plural is what they call it. So that's how it likely is with God, indicating God is triune. He's three in one. And so that's why he can refer to himself in the plural, but then use singular verbs uh, with that. Then God said, that being a singular uh, verb with a a plural. And so we can kind of see this cool apologetic in a sense for the triunity of God. We just don't want to defend it based on the plural of majesty. Anyways, all that to say, the word Elohim, you just need to understand that it refers to God in that context, but we got to be careful when we take it into other contexts. For example, we're going to talk about Genesis 6 later on, and the sons of God going into the daughters of man, and we're going to talk, it's a really complicated, challenging passage. But that passage, we just want to understand sons of God is not referring to the sons of the literal God. In that context, it's also probably not referring to angelic beings, but a third option. So we'll talk about that a little later, but just realize those terms 
are kind of, they're kind of flexible. They're kind of flexible in, in terms of what they refer to. So what you take away from that, God's divinity, his, his triunity is evidenced in early Genesis, but we just don't want to base it on this plural majesty idea, but something else, this quantitative plural. Okay, so think about that. Um, then the idea of um, another term, sorry, that is used in the Old Testament is the idea of holy ones. So Psalm 89, verses 5 to 7. Let's go there for a moment. And it says there, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. So referring again to the angels. So when you see the term holy ones, you just want to be alerted. Oh, that's probably referring, again, based on context, referring to angelic beings. So the holy ones, assembled beings, heavenly beings, the council, the holy ones, I believe those are all in the, the verses that follow. Verse 6, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Again, all those, as they're talking about those, likely referring to angelic beings. Daniel 4, verses 13, 17, and 23 talks about a watcher. And the watcher, again, referring to an angelic being. And so you just start to realize this class of beings that God has created gets referred to by a lot of different names in the Old and New Testament. It's just important that we realize that. It's not as straightforward as just like type into Bible gateway, angel, and that's all the occurrences of talking about angel in the Bible. Do the names of the angels relate to certain personalities? That's where we enter into like connecting the dots with the lines that we want to draw and Unfortunately, there's a guy, I can't remember his name, Dionysius maybe or something, uh, a long time ago, who made all these classes of angels based on Paul's talking about thrones, dominions, rulers, powers. And it's okay to like think that way in a sense of like, let's, let's try to put them in, but we just got to be very, very loose on that because Scripture does not talk about angels other than to say archangel, there's not really a whole lot of class given to us. We, we know there's some kind of hierarchy likely, but we don't have definitive details on that. So I would say, when we say holy ones, when we say all these things, we probably shouldn't think of them as all separate beings. Uh, we should probably be more inclined to think of them as a, a unified whole um, and just be careful about making, making uh, judgments on those individual ones. Does that help? Okay, good. So there is one special case that you will find throughout the Old Testament often where it talks about an angel. And this again is one of those complex, lots of debate on the topic, but an angel mentioned in the Old Testament often that shows up that doesn't really look quite like an angel in the sense of, let's talk uh, Daniel in, or not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're in the fiery furnace, and there's a fourth figure there. And we wonder, who's that fourth figure, right? Uh, Abraham. He meets these men. These men, and actually, we'll go to that one. It's in Genesis. Uh, where are we going? Genesis, I think it's around 17. Uh, 
16 or 17. And we're just going to see, these, it's mentioned as like the angel of the Lord came. But then we just have to understand what the angel of the Lord means. Uh, okay, well, 16.7 is also one. Thank you for pointing that one out. Where the angel of the Lord, so okay, Genesis 16 verse 7 says this, the angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, who had just been dismissed by her wife, or not her wife, had been dismissed by her mistress who was abusing her. It wasn't a good situation. Abraham had gone outside of God's plan and gotten Hagar pregnant and she'd gotten pregnant and Sarah was very frustrated by that, even though Sarah kind of told Abraham to do it. Uh, But she got angry and because of that, Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar and Hagar fled. And then the angel of the Lord found Hagar, her, by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand shall be against, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So the angel of the Lord declares that I will bless you, Hagar. So that angel of the Lord is like, is the angel actually blessing or is that angel of the Lord actually God manifesting himself in human form? Which is like the more likely, especially when she says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. She wouldn't be calling an angel that. But then we go over to Abraham having this encounter with, uh, with uh, the Lord, right? And I think in this one, maybe it actually just says, Verse 18, and the Lord appeared to him. This is Genesis 18.1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the door, tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And this account goes on. And you quickly see that he's, the, these three men somehow are equated with the Lord meeting with Abraham. I don't think it's necessarily meaning that's a triune God is meeting and that's like God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit in human form. But God manifested himself to his people in human form before Jesus Christ came to earth. And often when that happens, it's called the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord this, the angel of the Lord that. And so we have these special examples where that happens, uh, like with Hagar, like with Abraham, potentially with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this potentially pre-incarnate, basically meaning Jesus coming to earth in flesh 
before he actually came as a baby at the year 0 AD or 3 BC or whatever it was, right? So this manifestation of God before, and that's often called the angel of the Lord. Not every time, if you see the word an angel of the Lord, it's much less likely that that's the case. But if you see the angel of the Lord, be on the lookout for an example of that. Yep. Yeah, probably. So the question being, is it a pre-incarnate Christ? Is it Jesus Christ or is it God the Father? We don't have record anywhere that God the Father is in human form. We have God the Father. God is spirit. We know Jesus became flesh. The Holy Spirit, we don't believe, became flesh. So it's most likely referring to Jesus as pre-incarnate, like coming in the form of a man. Again, in the Old Testament, Jesus isn't talked about as Jesus of the New Testament because Jesus of the New Testament wasn't yet Jesus of the New Testament. So we're in the Old Testament. So for it to refer to and say Jesus, like the proper name, probably wouldn't happen because that was like the name that he had in the New Testament, right? Before that, he's like referred to as the Messiah, the promised one. He is God the Son. So, yeah, go ahead. Right, that Jesus says that? Yeah. Right. So, oh, to say, so, so for Jesus to say, before, of Ab- before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. But that would mean, like, Jesus is eternal, right? Yeah. So for Jesus to say, before Abraham, I am, would be totally true, even if he didn't manifest himself as a physical human being because he has existed from all eternity, right? Which, yeah, is a good, a good point to make. Um, Jesus showing up in other places in the Bible, there's probably other instances we could point out. I'm trying to think of some of them. But in the New Testament, should we expect... Look, one of the questions that comes to my mind when I thought, okay, the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament and it is perhaps Jesus, right? That's our best kind of understanding of the text to be faithful to it. Does Jesus show up in the New Testament after, obviously, Jesus shows up and lives his life, dies, is raised to life, and ascends to heaven? Then I'm like, does Jesus show up after that? And the only time I can think of that might be a Jesus showing up after that is when Paul meets God on the road to Damascus. But it's not referred to God as being a physical human being there. But then it just got me to think, should we expect for Jesus to show up in human form as perhaps like the angel of the Lord today? My thought would be no, because the next time Jesus comes, it's his second coming, right? And his second coming is going to be loud and announced. There's going to be a trumpet. Nobody's going to be, nobody's going to be, uh, did Jesus come, right? It's going to be well, well announced. So I don't think, while the angel of the Lord showed up Old Testament, I don't think we should be expecting that kind of thing. I don't think you should be, as you're sitting by the oaks of Mamre, that uh, you're going to have God in flesh walking up to you. Now, I could be wrong on that, and somebody can uh, afterwards point out. Ray, you got a point?
Interesting. Encountered Jesus, right? Yeah. So when I've thought of Paul as an apostle and the qualification for an apostle, the reason we don't have apostles today is that nobody has spent time face-to-face, flesh-on-flesh like kind of thing with Jesus Christ himself. That was the qualification. When I thought of Paul, that's why I thought of the, the, uh, like the Damascus Road incident where Paul encounters God, and that's what I've understood as being his encounter with the risen Lord. Um, so I'm going to have to get back to you on that, but... of his apostleship in Galatians talking about that. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that. If, if that was the case that Paul spent, let's say, three years in the desert with physical Jesus, the reason I would say that that is not going to be the case for you and I would be, first of all, the apostolic age being done, but also Jesus has a role now in heaven interceding at the right hand of God, and the Holy Spirit has come in a way that it had not come in the Old Testament. Now, that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves to like week four and five, or five and six. But the idea being in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers in Jesus Christ, or there weren't believers in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ hadn't come yet. There were believers in God, men like Abraham. The Holy Spirit did not indwell them. And so when Jesus came, he ushered in this new age when the Holy Spirit did come, and indwell believers. And so that would be my understanding of why Jesus would not show up in human form because now his role is he's interceding at the right hand of God and the Holy Spirit has come. So if, like, and I guess we, like, we could probably study that passage in uh, Galatians to try and understand, but even if it was to say, okay, this is a, after the New Testament, Jesus Christ shows up in human form, it would still be in that, like, apostolic age, I guess is what I would say, right? In the same way that Jesus did show up, the Lord did show up to Paul on the Damascus road. No, no bones about it, right? He absolutely did. So, but yeah, I'll, I'll take a, if you don't mind like jotting that down to send me an email, then I can, uh, can look more into that. So all that to say, again, with terms, we've kind of gone through a, a laundry list of terms, right? Of New Testament phrases that refer to angels and then Old Testament phrases that refer to angels. And that one we have to watch out for is the angel of the Lord, which can, can refer to the, uh, the uh, manifestation of God. So there's other heavenly beings that might be a special class of angel that have been mentioned. The cherubim, right? Not cherubs like the little guys that you see that are like naked and have a little... Uh, little bow and arrow, right? That is like totally not anywhere close to what the cherubim probably look like. But the cherubim are mentioned. They're mentioned a few times, quite a few times. One of the times that they show up first is guarding the garden. So when Adam and Eve sin, God says, okay, now they can no longer have access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis 3, 24, I believe it is, the cherubim are what God sets up as the guard to the tree of life. So that's the first instance where we see of this angelic type of being. We should be careful. This is where it maybe is true that we can draw some lines of class with angels. The way the cherubim are described 
the way the seraphim are described, those likely do not apply to angels as a whole. Okay? Because angels, we don't, because of their appearance, they're, they are, well, we're looking at this in a moment, but they are spiritual beings that can manifest themselves uh, in physical form. But the seraphim, we'll look at that uh, in a moment. The cherubim, let's just talk about them. God is said to be enthroned on the cherubim, meaning like riding on them, their, their wings. Uh, Psalm 18 verse 10 would be where we'd see that example. God enthroned on the cherubim. The cherubim are also the golden cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant where God would meet with his people. So you look at Exodus 25 and verse 22. And there you're going to see a description of that. And they were told how the, the, the cherubim were to be on the ark and their wingtips were to, uh, to meet over top of the ark and God's presence would dwell there and he would meet with his people. And that refers to the cherubim. So what we know about the cherubim, we look at that, but then we don't want to just like whitewash, apply that to all angelic beings that are mentioned in scripture. If we're going to think of special classes, we should probably think of the cherubim as a special class unto themselves of angels. We should probably think of the seraphim, only mentioned once in Isaiah 6, verses 2 to 7, in a similar way. So let's turn to Isaiah 6. Um, so a well-known passage, but you can kind of see there why we probably shouldn't just ex- ex- uh, explain the seraphim as like that's the prototype for all future angels that have existed. So Isaiah 6, this is uh, the prophet Isaiah and one of his visions that he had. In the, we'll start in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Again, that em ending means plural. So there's seraphim, plural. Each had six wings. So these angels have wings. Should we think that all angels have wings? We can't be dogmatic about that. And if we do, then we should say they all have six wings, not like two wings like most people draw them, right? If we're going to be dogmatic about that. But let's say this applies to the seraphim. They each had six wings, and their wings had different purposes. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So as we look at that passage, we start seeing, okay, this is what the seraphim are described as. Six wings, the ability to fly. Should we assume all angels have six wings and the ability to fly? Probably not, but this is one, one type of angelic being that it would be pretty hard to deny is angelic. But again, it's in a vision that he had um, where he saw this. And so we just want to be, again, kind of hold loosely to that, right? realizing this is what's been described as a seraphim. So there's a cherubim guarding the garden, enthroned on the cherubim. Um, 
they're in on the Ark of the Covenant. Then there's the seraphim, which only show up in Isaiah 6. Then there's these things called living creatures, which are bizarre beyond imagination. Look up creation, uh, like pictures of living creatures in Ezekiel, and you'll be like, what in the world is that? Even better, we'll read some of it. So if you go to the prophet Ezekiel and read, he mentions these things called living creatures that there's like no good class or category for, but these are likely, again, a type of angelic being. Ezekiel 1, verse 5 to 14. And from the midst, so actually let's start at verse 4, Ezekiel 1, verse 4. And as I looked, this is Ezekiel, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it. And fire, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. So this is like, again, like this is something that's a, a, a vision or a word of the Lord that's come to Ezekiel, and this is what it's saying. This is what it's describing. He's describing it, this encounter. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had like a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the, face, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. For the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. And then he sees a wheel. And it's just bizarre. Can you imagine seeing something like that and being able to describe it? You're like, I, I just can't. So this living being, this living creature, we have to include it somewhere. It's, it's, it fits somewhere in the realm. And so the best place for us to, to categorize this is probably as an angelic being. But we don't want to take that description of the living creatures and apply that to what all angels are going to look like. Certainly that was not the, the angel that, uh, that the shepherds claimed. Again, this is trying to draw dots and trying to connect the dots as best we can and trying to be faithful to Scripture. We don't have uh, it explained all for us. So if we read through those passages and we read about angels, this is like kind of like a definition, a working definition. It's definitely working because it needs more work. But a working definition of angels. We think of angels as created spiritual beings that have intellect, will, emotions, and who are corruptible and immortal. That's like a lot of different things. But I'll say that again a couple of times. Created spiritual beings with intellect, with will, they have the ability to make a decision, to some degree emotions, 
and who are corruptible and immortal. They are corruptible and immortal. So we're going to walk through each one of those and kind of see scriptures that help us to flesh out that definition. But again, just think about this. Because if you're like me, I'm like, okay, this is all great intellectual exercise, but they, like, angels exist? Like, I've never seen an angel. What, what's their purpose? What are they? And so this helps us going to Scripture, recognizing what they are. We'll get through... Uh, we'll get the, through this, and then we won't have our discussion question until closer to 8, probably, and then we'll have a discussion question and then a little bit more. If we don't cover everything today, that's fine. The discussion question, though, is going to be a fun one. So, created beings... Are angels created? Absolutely. Colossians 1.16. If you have your Bible, turn to Colossians 1.16 and it's going to make it pretty clear that angels are created. Is the screen helping people or would you prefer looking it up on your own phone? The screen? Okay. Because I can type it in real easy. I just don't want you to be lazy. So, <laughs> Colossians 1.16. Colossians 1.16, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossae, says some interesting things actually. Um, I can't avoid just saying verse 15 for a moment. Okay, verse 15, Paul is talking, and this is a verse that's classically misunderstood. He says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which is where tons of people want to get off and say Jesus was created. There we have it. He was firstborn. But it's actually meaning he's like no other. Rather than understanding him to be firstborn as saying he's the born son, it's saying he's like no other. And the reason we know that is actually because that same phrase is used of Abraham's son, Isaac, but Isaac wasn't the firstborn. Isaac wasn't because we already learned that Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham, right? Isaac was actually the one like no other. And so Jesus is not created. He's one like no other in that sense. He's totally unique. But then it's saying this is Jesus, for by him... Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. You can't get more categorical than that. Like, everything you can see and everything you can't see, Jesus created. Jesus was the, the agent through which God created. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, those terms again, all things were created through him and for him. So angelic beings were definitely created. You can also write down, Psalm 148, verses 2, has another uh, example where it talks about uh, these angels, these ones that he created. Praise him, this is Psalm 148, verse 2 and on. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. All of those things that were just listed were created by the Lord. So angels created. Now Job 38 is kind of interesting. It gives us a little bit more of a clue. Job 38 verses 4. Job, the story of Job in a nutshell is God comes before the, the sons of God and the accuser comes and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the accuser's like, yes, Great guy, but he will only follow you as long as things are going well. And so the accuser, Satan, is given access to Job's life, Job's life to 
wreak havoc, and he does. And then at the end, this is one of those places where God, in the story, chats with Job and talks to Job about how awesome he is, because Job basically hadn't realized by that point. He was a righteous man, didn't sin in the things he did, but hadn't quite, quite gotten this. And so Job 38 verse 4, God is talking to Job and says this, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Sons of God there, same kind of thing, referring to angelic beings when they, they sang for joy. And so we have in Job 38, we talk, it talks about these, uh, these sons of God that he shouted for joy, essentially when he created angels before the foundations of the earth. So we don't know, in terms of a timeline, we like want to have a neat, tidy timeline for when angels were created. We know they were created. They definitely had a starting point. We know they were created for sure before the end of the seventh day, because at the end of the seventh day in Genesis 2, it says that God rested and everything was done. But we don't exactly know where in there they were created. Genesis account doesn't tell us exactly when, but it was probably before the foundations of the earth. Yeah. Right. Why is it within the seven? Right. Yeah. So in in so in it's possible, right? Because in Genesis one one it talks about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Likely within that we could say that angels are within the heavens and the earth. But to say that applies directly to the seven days, I don't know if we can be so dogmatic about that because it doesn't say. Okay, so theoretically, God could have created the angels a billion years ago and created the earth 10,000 years ago and all that inhabits it, theoretically, I think. I could be wrong on that. But... It doesn't say, you're like, that's not very sure. Well, because the Bible doesn't say, it just says before the foundations of the earth, right? When I laid the foundation of the earth, so we know that, but what about the foundation of the heavens? I don't know, right? So when we're talking about the creation of the angels, we know they were created, absolutely guaranteed. We know they were created before the end of the seventh day, but they're in there somewhere likely before humans were created, because angels were created to one of their purposes, as we'll see, is to be ministering servants. But perhaps they lived for like thousands, millions of years before the earth was created, and their job was just to continually praise God, right? It's, it's possible. I'm not sure that that's where I would immediately go. But again, I don't think we have the information to say that uh, with surety. Again, if you, uh, if you see something where you're like, actually, Scripture says, point me to it. We know they're not born. So this is an interesting fact about angels. Angels aren't like humans where they're like procreated because Matthew 22, verse 30, Jesus actually says he's being confronted by the Sadducees, these people that are trying to trick him. And basically the Sadducees, in a synopsis, 
they come before Jesus and they say, this lady, she was married seven times. Like each time she married, her husband died. She married, her husband died, married, her husband died. In the resurrection, whose husband will she be? They're trying to trip him up. Jesus being Jesus, knowing exactly what's going on, is like, hey, you guys don't even believe in the resurrection, so why would you ask that? But you don't even know what you're talking about. I'm paraphrasing heavily. You don't know what you're talking about <laughs> because in the resurrection, people are going to be like the angels and they're not going to marry, right? They won't be given in marriage. So that's a note for us. Hey, marriage is for this life only, right? But it's also a note about the angels. The angels don't marry. The angels don't procreate. They don't have kids. So, yes, Angels are never described in the feminine gender, but masculine form, yes, they're always, like, as far as I know from the Hebrew and Greek words, they're always referred to in the masculine gender. They're not portrayed as feminine, but I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily want to mean that that means they're guaranteed male. I don't know that gender is such a big issue in that. Um, the reason, the reason I would say that is in one sense, like gender, yeah. I'm trying to think of like, okay, there's, there's words, English doesn't do this, but you know, French or other language, you have words that are masculine words, but it doesn't have anything to do with gender. Okay. So, yep. Sign language has that too. Yes, so scripture doesn't comment directly saying, like, it, this is a man that I'm aware of, but it always refers to it in the masculine gender. But that masculine gender could be used for, for example, the word sin, I believe, is a feminine word in Greek. Oh, of course. Why? Right? So let's abuse that and say sin is a female problem. We already knew that. When it refers to, interestingly, you also get, you also, <laughs> don't take that one and quote that. When you take words like Adam, Adam is not actually a word that means just man. Adam means like from the earth. It means like a mankind, right? So it's, what's, yeah, no, no, I wasn't going there. <laughs> wasn't going there. This is why we should use a Bible that continues to use gender. Yes. I don't want to get all political on us, right? But. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Right. Right. Yes. Good. So the Got Questions site, if you use that, it's great, great. Uh, question site, it aligns fairly similarly with most of our beliefs, so not 100% across them, but uh, very, very solid. The Got Questions mentions just that Angelos only found in the masculine form in the New Testament, not in the feminine. So if you wanted to draw a conclusion, you could say it's, if there is a gender, it's likely masculine, but again, it's not something that's specifically, uh, explicitly said, I should say. So created beings, not born. So because they're not born, that means angels were created all at once. 
right? God created angels and boom, there's thousands upon thousands. There's like, there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. And we'll look at some scriptures that say that. But it's just interesting to think, okay, angels were created all at once. So a couple of things that plague us as humans don't plague angels. For example, when we talk about sin and inherited sin, right? We have a, like Adam sinned and he messed it up for the rest of us, right? When one angel sins though, that doesn't make the rest of angels sinful, and there's no angels that come after that angel because they don't have children, so it's not the same in terms of the original sin. Um, but just thinking, okay, angels are all created likely at once. It's not likely, well, it's not actually, I'm sure, that there's not angels being created right now, right? God finished his creation on the, se- on the seventh day and rested, and it was all done. So angels are created, right? So created, not born, likely created all at once, and that's just interesting for us to think about. So like right away, there's all these people praising God. There's all these people serving uh, him and his creation. Angels are spiritual. So if we go to Hebrews 1, 13 to 14, we've already gone there. It talks about angels being ministering spirits. Very, very, very clear that angels are spiritual beings. So if you think about it in the, like, the way God's created creation, there are immaterial physical things like this table. It doesn't have a soul or a spirit. There are physical things like us that have a spiritual dimension, right? That's pretty unique. Then there's spiritual things that don't necessarily have a physical dimension, a.k.a. like God the Father is spirit, right? but the angels are spirit as well. They're just a spirit of a different type, right? They're not on par with God at all, but they are spiritual beings, right? And so it's just interesting for us to think about spiritual beings like that. Ephesians 6 verse 12, uh, a helpful verse that talks to us about the spiritual realm we're in. Uh, Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, just pointing to, this is now kind of talking about our battle against demonic or fallen angels, which we'll get into, but essentially saying that angels are spiritual beings. So they're created they're spiritual. They can manifest themselves as people. E.g., example, Luke 2, verse 9, where the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds in the field. That angel appeared. It was not a spiritual angel only. It was a physical manifestation. They actually saw with their eyes a manifestation of this angel. So angels are spiritual beings. They can manifest themselves physically. Often they are not seen though, which is evidenced for us in the story of Balaam. Just an interesting story about uh, Balaam. Number t- numbers 22:31. Just look that up for a moment. Balaam was a interesting fellow who wasn't exactly righteous, not at all. Um, and at one point in his journey. He's riding a donkey and going a certain way, and the donkey doesn't want to go that way anymore. Uh, and so he like beats the donkey, and the donkey's like, I'm not going, right? And then the donkey talks to him, uh, which is <laughs> ridiculous, right? It's like Shrek, and you're like, what's going on? 
So the donkey talks to him and tells him like, hey, I'm not doing it. And then the Lord opens, verse 31, the Lord opens the eyes of Balaam and he saw that the angel of the Lord, stand, saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed down and fell on his face. So prior to that, right up above it, Balaam is like on this donkey saying, go, go, go. And he cannot see until God reveals to him this, this angelic being. Again, it, there it's like the angel of the Lord. And so that makes me like, oh, is this a pre-incarnate Christ? We don't have any, any evidence from that um, necessarily to say. It says there in verse 32, And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. Uh, and so going on, down verse 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore it is evil in your sight. I will turn back. So anyways, we could go through that passage and we could try to understand, does, he ever, does the angel of the Lord ever identify himself very, very clearly as God himself or just as a messenger of God and then try to understand from that um, just exactly what it is. But the whole idea is angels go unseen, right? Often unseen uh, and then they can be looked at. There's an example um, an example with, I believe it's Elisha and his servant. And I can't remember the passage offhand right now, but Elisha and his servant. And Elisha prays for God to open the eyes of his servant to see this multitude of angels around that are protecting them. Somebody can look for that passage and let me know when they find it. But Elisha and his servant, again, just evidencing that these angels often go unseen. So they're spiritual beings. They're created. They're often unseen when they can be seen, they look sometimes like humans, right? Sometimes they look, yep, Second Kings 16 is Elisha. Okay, cool. So question, good question, Yusuf. So basically asking when these manifestations happen, did God actually make the angel appear or just make them able to see spiritually, like to see that they appeared? And I would say probably it's not conclusive to say, but I would, I would almost think that it's like, okay, now the angel's visible. In the Elisha one, it's like, it seems like, Second Kings, what is it? Let's look at it for a second. Right, so it's like Balaam was like super blind to the spiritual reality. Um, so Second Kings, what was it, six? You're going to say that reference for me like 10 times, sorry. And why am I looking it up on here again? So, uh, Second Kings six seventeen. So just to set up a little bit of the context, so we know what's going on. Right. So the king, the king of Syria, is sending these horses and chariots and a great army and surrounding the city where Elisha is. Verse 15, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, fell fire all around Elisha. 
And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And it goes on and on. Basically, Elisha prayed for eyes to be opened. So it would seem that the angel was visible and present. He just wasn't seeing it. Same with the donkey. But again, as we read through it, it's kind of like, well, Scripture doesn't tell us if every single person around saw the angel that the donkey and Balaam saw. It looks like it was just the two of them. So it's kind of a moot point for that one, right? Because as you see it, like the people that were there saw it, whether they saw it and it was really there or they saw it and it wasn't really there. Ray? Hmm. So I'll just say that for the sake of the microphone and for those in the back, he was just mentioning that he was reading about fields of vision and saying that you can see visible light, but there's ultraviolet light, light that we can't see. And if we could extend our vision to that, this author was saying perhaps that helps to, then we could see angels. The only thing I would say with that is, yeah, that might be true, but then like you could go with your ultraviolet light reader or something and like find angels. <laughs> like, hey, there's one there, right? So I don't know. I'm, I'm just theoretically thinking like, could you use heat detection sources then and like see, hey, there's actually something there or... Uh, and maybe, maybe there would be. <laughs> maybe somebody should go research that. Um, but just, I would say, like, let's, that's, again, could be a Western idea of let's see how we can explain it. It's not saying it's not possible. I would be very fascinated to see in those dimensions. But it is an inter- it's an interesting thing to play around with. It. But at the end of the day, if God wants you to see an angel, he's going to show you an angel. If God wants to hide an angel, you're not going to, like, see it, right? So it is a spiritual thing that God manifests and then says, I don't think donkeys have a different range of vision than humans. Maybe they do. They can see outside the visible light spectrum. But anyways, interesting, interesting thought to think about. Uh, so when we do see them, they can, they can seem like humans. In Judges 13, Samson's parents speak with an angel that appears by all, all evidences to, to look like a human because Samson's dad doesn't even realize that it's a human. So you can read about that in Judges 13. We don't have time to look at it tonight, but read through that. They can look like humans. Sometimes it's bright light or glory of the Lord that's shining around them, as in Luke 2, verse 9, when, again, the angels speak to the shepherds. The angel at the tomb of Jesus, Matthew 28, verse 3. Matthew 28, verse 3, had appearance that was, white, was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. So, Again, it looks like perhaps a human appearance, but his, his appearance was like lightning, like that's bright, and clothes as white as snow. So these are different appearances they can have. The misconceptions that we get is like, yes, the cherubim, the seraphim have wings, but it doesn't seem like the angel at the tomb had wings. So like, let's not just like paint wings on everyone. Yeah, at the back. Yep. Yeah, so, okay, she's mentioning the, the angel that came to Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and just saying those are angelic beings that looked like humans, right? So that would be a good example. Those angels are the exact same ones that met Abraham right prior to that. And so those angels could be 
a manifestation of God himself. So we got to, like, it's the angel of, uh, that says, that's the one, if I remember correctly, saying, like, the Lord appeared to Abraham, and then it talks about these three men, and these three men talking as though they are the Lord, but then these men going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Only two of them went? Okay, so then that case, yeah, I guess that would make more sense that, like, now it's, okay, I'm going to have to look at that one to see, but, no, they didn't wrestle with Abraham. That was Jacob. So that's a different passage. But, okay, we'll, do, we'll look at that one for next week uh, to see because I hadn't thought about how that would, that would play out. But what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah is awful, obviously. But uh, how angels appear is not, I guess what we we're getting at is how angels appear. We should not just draw the cultural notions of touched by an angel where it's like they show up and they have, wings or they show up with a halo over their head or whatever it might be angels do have the ability to fly it looks like daniel 9 verse 21 talks about gabriel flying doesn't have mention of wings but that doesn't mean they so it doesn't mean they have wings doesn't mean they don't have wings again draw your conclusions in pencil sketch right Uh, revelation 14 6 also talks about that idea of angels having the ability to fly Emotions, joy, though. That was a part of our definition. So they have joy over repentant sinners. Luke 15, verse 10. Just turn to Luke 15, verse 10 for a moment. Jesus is sharing a parable, and at the end of the parable, he tells them this, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So they actually have, whether it's joy or whether it's a state of mind, right? Whether it's like an emotion or a state of mind, they, have, they do have joy over a sinner that repents, which is pretty cool to think when a, when a sinner repents, we're excited, hopefully, but we're not the only ones excited, right? There's actually angels who are excited, the angels of God who are, there's, there's joy with them because they're seeing that. Angels don't have, lim- they have limited knowledge, we'll mention that in a bit, but this is part of them seeing a repentant sinner, and they're like, this is the way it's supposed to work. This is how God's salvation story is supposed to work. They're supposed to repent. That's a good thing. They have a will. They have the ability to choose evil. So 2 Peter 2 verse 4, this is kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but it's important. As we define angels, obviously that's going to lead us into fallen angels eventually, fallen angels and demons. But 2 Peter 2 verse 4. I keep wanting to go to my paper Bible. 2 Peter 2, or 2 Peter, the the, uh, the letter of 2 Peter and the letter of Jude, very, very similar, a lot of similar themes. So as you you read through them, um, a lot of complicated themes as well, but some, some snippets we can take about angels from them that are absolutely true. 2 Peter 2 verse 4, it says, for if God did not spare angels, wept until judgment. So he didn't spare the angels. The angels actually sinned. Yep. Yeah. So the question is a good one. The question is basically, again, for the, the, the podcast guys, uh, the question is about the angels sinning. And basically, angels can choose to sin. Why can't they be redeemed? Right? Why can't they be redeemed? Why doesn't God redeem them? Ultimately, we don't know. We know, I would say, fairly certain for sure that angels will not be redeemed. 
Um, I was actually having a discussion with somebody today about angels and just saying, okay, we know angels did sin and God condemned them to hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, these fallen angels. We know that that happened. But the angels that are left, are, they're not saved, they're just unfallen angels. They're, they're angels that are, they haven't fallen then I asked myself the question, could, I, this is kind of getting off track, but I'll get to, back to your question. Could they have fallen still? Could an angel fall today? Could an angel choose to disobey God today and end up in hell? I'm like, hmm. Well, there's one verse in 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, verse 21, I think, where it talks about us before the angels, but before specifically the elect angels. So, we don't know why it works this way, but God has, in his sovereignty, it would appear, set aside angels that would never fall and allowed other angels to fall. With humanity, he did it differently. He set aside those that would be saved, but all humanity fell and he chose to redeem some. So the question is really the exact same question that's asked of those that will spend an eternity in hell as humans, which is why didn't God save all humanity? Right? Because it, like, if we're taking it, angels, they're all starting out without sin. Some choose to sin. God there's elect angels that God allowed, chose to never sin, then you're asking yourself the question, well, why does anybody spend time in hell? And that question ultimately is in the hands of a sovereign God that I, I, like, I can't answer for. Why does somebody spend time in hell and I don't? I, that's, that's the mind of God, right? In terms of like, why are there people Spend. I, 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 can, I can talk to you why hell exists and why sin is a just, or hell is a just punishment for sin. That's a, a good discussion. We could talk about that. You know, we, we sin against a holy, infinite God, and because we as even temporal beings sin against a holy and infinite God, that deserves a holy and infinite, or an infinite punishment. There's no, there's no measure. And so hell, eternal punishment is the only thing that could satisfy the just wrath of a holy infinite God or Jesus Christ himself dying and taking their place. I could, I could like explain that, but I could not jump into the mind of God and say, why them? Why them? Why not? I, I don't know that we have that ability. And so just, but hopefully that helps with the thought of like thinking about angels. There are angels that are unfallen. And those angels that are unfallen, God has elect to be there. Like, that is... So they just didn't have to fall to, <laughs> to be saved, in a sense, right? So, yeah, that might be, might be a way to think about it. Um, so they're, they're corruptible, though, right? So sin is possible for angels. They can, uh, they have the, the will, but they are also corruptible. So we as humans are corruptible, but we're all born corrupt angels are corruptible, or were corruptible, I should say, 
But I would actually argue that now angels cannot fall anymore because of that verse about 1 Timothy 5.21, there being elect angels. Essentially, I don't know whether there was a period of time. Again, this is my best conclusions. I wouldn't draw this as, well, I don't know how firm a dot I would draw this in our picture of angels. But I would say there, there appears to have been a time where before, before man sinned, where obviously the accuser, the devil, sinned, right, um, as a, a fallen angel, it appears there would be a, a time or maybe there's a one-time option for angels to choose to disobey and go with Satan or to stay. But after that, I don't believe there's now like, okay, tomorrow an angel is, gonna, an angel is going to sin and fall. Because that kind of has been, that, that has passed and they're kind of, it's kind of set. Just as it will happen, just, just getting, I'll get your question in a second. Just as it will happen for us when we are saved, when we pass on, your salvation is secured for eternity. You come into the presence of God and it's not like you can now mess it up and be kicked out of heaven, right? Because you have been saved. What Jesus Christ has done for you has it's paid the penalty. You've trusted him by faith. So your salvation is sure. So don't worry. Like, it's not like eternal destinies, once you die, change. Um, but there is, it appears like this time where there was angels kind of chose teams. And now they're condemned to those teams for eternity. It seems that way. I don't know if I could give you a better answer, but yeah. Yeah, so God has given us a time. And so it's possible, yeah, that God has given a time to the angels to, you know, choose to fall or not. It's pretty clear, though, that it was an, an act of their desire, their will to fall, um, that they have that ability. They're immortal and cannot die. That's something we see in Luke 20, verses 36. Luke 20, verse 36 Again, Jesus talking, this is a parallel passage to the Matthew one where Jesus is talking about, you know, in the resurrection they won't marry. Uh, Verse 35, But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Verse 36, For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Essentially saying, they're like the angels, the angels don't die. And so, Angels live, but they don't die. So there's the same likely constant amount of angelic beings. Um, Then there's the one fact in here. It says kind of like they're equal at that time to angels. There's some roles that we figure out, like right now, we are lower than angels in our relative relationship to them. One day we will judge angels. We'll look at those next week, those verses. But angels right now are greater in power and might than we as humans. 2 Peter 2, verse 11, another, uh, another verse that talks about that. Uh, so bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, greater in might and power than those, those wicked guys, do not pronounce blasphemous judgments against them before the Lord what we glean from that in that passage is angels being greater in might and in power. So there's that. And then this last one, D 
Daniel 10, verses 12 to 14, there's an angel that approaches Daniel, and it seems as in the, in the context that it's indicating Daniel, to Daniel that this angel can only be in one location at one time. Spirit being, but somehow still not omnip, omnipresent like God is, right? Uh, and so being in this one place at one time. Now, we have about 15 minutes left, so we have a couple of things uh, left, but I really want to get this question. Okay, so the question is, I want you just to discuss with the people immediately around you for three to five minutes, is what does it mean to be an image bearer of God? Because the question will be, then are angels image bearers of God as well or not? Okay, so it's like, ah, I haven't thought about that a whole lot, but in Genesis 1, God says that he made man in his image, so what does it mean to be an image bearer? Okay, so you have about five minutes to discuss that, to figure out. You can use Google if you want. That's totally fair game. Totally fair game. Don't go there first, but just take five minutes, discuss it, and then we'll chat about that question and close up. Just, okay, we're going to hear one group's, one group or one individual's thoughts about what it might mean to be an image bearer of God. Okay, so not physical attributes, which I'm pretty sure all of us could agree on, right? Because God doesn't have physical attributes as God the Father as Spirit. So spiritual, okay, yep. So spiritual, like the fruits of the Spirit. So like as somebody is showing love, joy, peace. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Do you want to have Yeah, so for us to try and to increase in the spiritual fruit. So, okay, that's good. Not good enough. Well, my, my question would be then, okay, but what about non-believers who don't have the Spirit of God indwelling them? Are they created in the image of God? That's all right. You can ask the question. Uh, I was going to say, so there's definitely certain people that much more reflect the character of God than others, right? There's some people that totally don't reflect the character of God, but does somebody want to share their definition from (laughs) gotquestions.org? Thanks. No, okay. What do you you think it means to image bearer? Um, I read one sentence, and I just don't remember. So I'm going to say for me, when I personally consider it, I think it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. So he's basically talking more about the role God has given us to be in dominion or the mental ability that he's given us to be rational human beings or to think or to have relationships. Okay. Yeah, okay. Free, like volition, right? We can choose to follow, to not follow. Those are things, right? Okay, any other groups that want to add their two cents? Ray? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's very interesting, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right, okay, yeah. Right. Right. We want to be careful with those. So basically, the triunity of God being what it means to be in the image of God, perhaps being the fact that we're body, soul, and spirit. Um, the only danger with that when you go to other things is we just don't want to... The triunity of, uh, triunity of God is unlike anything else. And so as long as we don't go backwards with that, we're probably okay to say like, okay, we're made in the image, in the likeness, in that sense, but it's, we're very dissimilar in the same sense because our body, soul, and spirit are not co-equal, not all like we're going to shed this body and get a resurrection body. So, yeah, it would be... It's an interesting concept, though, with the triunity, body, soul, spirit. I think it's, it's tapping onto something. Okay, let me put this as a question to you that I have not answered yet. Would your definition of to be an image bearer of God apply to an unborn child in the womb? If it doesn't, it's probably insufficient. So if you're thinking only the ability to have rational thought, the brain isn't developed at one week conception or one week of, of pregnancy. But we would all agree that that is absolutely human life, right? Do you have a... The spirit. The spirit. Okay, so the spirit being one of them, right? So I would, I would say there's more to that, the idea of it there being a spiritual dimension one other way to think of being an image bearer might actually be to think of image bearing as a, a status more than an attribute. To, so to say you are, you are set apart as an image bearer of God, not necessarily because you're mentally better than the animals, not meant necessarily because of these things, but you're set apart. And maybe the spiritual realm would be the, the place where you say, yeah, you have a soul. No, no other things have a soul, right? That can be saved. Just interesting to think, especially as we talk about angels, if we talk about being spiritual beings, angels are spiritual beings, so then you're like, hmm, could they be made in the image of God? Scripture doesn't tell us they're made in the image of God, but you just start thinking about that definition. If it's about having volition, like the ability to choose or having intellect, the angels have those. So I think the only area where you could say we're different is in the idea of a soul that can be redeemed, right? Like having spiritual life. But if you think of it as a status, then there's also the idea that you could be, you're an image bearer, but that image bearer is like a status that's on you and you're meant to fulfill that status, meaning you're, you're an image bearer regardless of whether you do this, but as an image bearer, here's how you are to behave, right? You are to have dominion. You are to show the fruits of the spirit and those kinds of things. But anyways, just an interesting thing for you to think about, especially as it comes to unborn children, does your status or does your definition of what it means to be an image bearer fit that? And are the angels image bearers? I, I can't tell you, but it's an interesting thought. So we're going to leave it there. Next week, we'll pick up and talk a couple more questions about angels, some intellect. But then next week, we're going to talk a lot more about application in terms of what does it actually mean for us, all this stuff about angels, and how do we interact with, what should we expect from our relationship with angels then there's going to be a, a more official Q&A time at the end. So save your questions for that. Again, 
if you can email questions, it helps me out a ton because I'll just tell you I'm not as good on the spot live as I will be if I have a chance to prepare. So let me close in prayer and then we will be on our way. Heavenly Father, we're so, so grateful for your, your word. We're thankful for the angels. We know that you've created them and we uh, praise you for that. We don't want to worship angels, but we also want to recognize who they are and not neglect them. We want to worship you alongside the angels and just recognize your glory and splendor and awe, at just how amazing that is. Lord, help us not to walk through life ignorant of the spiritual realities you've uh, you've told us about. Help us to read your word, to grow in our knowledge of it. Lord, help, help this to be uh, useful in our lives to help, uh, to help us follow you better and to give you glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.